Hello, and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay, here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we will be discussing sacraments of mission. So let's get started. Good to be here with you, uh, Lindsay, as we kind of finish up, you might say, uh, the sacramental aspect of, of, of this uh, podcast and such. And, and even when you think about it, uh, called sacraments of mission, that's actually one of the first times I've heard them called that. Usually it's just sacraments of commitment, sacraments of, of uh, you know, lifestyle sacraments. But uh, there is something to be said about, you know, sacraments of mission, because when you think about a couple getting married or someone being ordained, they really are, you know, making a commitment which will change forever how they interact, um, how they engage the people of the world around them. Uh, certainly, you know, as a priest, you know, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but also as a couple. And sometimes we don't think about the fact that when, you, when you're looking at it as a couple and, and what that means of, of someone being committed to another person, that that is their, that person is their focus in the sense that uh, they're not playing the field. They're not looking for someone else. They're not engaging the possibilities of saying, wow, that's an interesting person because they already have an interesting person in their life that they are committed to through thick and thin and recognizing that, uh, that this is how they live out that, that call to discipleship, certainly committed to, to Jesus Christ. But recognizing that that committed commitment is intimately bound with another person. So when you, it makes sense, I guess I, it's just interesting that I had not, that sacraments of mission, I have not heard that being used regularly. Okay, but to be fair, that is what you told me before we started. You're I didn't right. just make that up. No, 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 you didn't. And, and you're right, we had talked a bit about that uh, before. It's just that as I was reflecting on it for today, it's like, Wow, you know, it's it's it was in the book, you know, which is part of it, and I and I've been using you know some of the resources that we've been using, but I was just thinking, I said, why why was that not so much uncomfortable, but why did it strike me differently? And and, and part of that was is it's just not what I have been let's say commonly used to, mm-hmm. you know, over my years of education and even of priesthood, it has certainly been referred like I said referred to it in lots of ways. Sacrament of Mission was just not one of those. Who knows why? Who knows yeah, why? well, when you said that, I was like, hmm, I don't know if I've really... Yeah, I hadn't yeah. learned that either. Yeah. But it makes sense. So we're going to start with, you know, the Sacrament of Marriage. Um, and realizing that that there are, are key pieces of marriage that, that, that are, are terribly important before a person can, uh, you know, really enter into that sacrament. Like any... Uh, like any of the sacraments, except for baptism, because that's when you are baptized, is that one, uh, you know, to enter the sacrament is to be baptized. Um, there needs to be a freedom that this is, and but that goes again with all of our sacraments, that they are not to be forced upon people. They are not to be, you know, just required as much, but they need to be entered into freely. That, that a person, you know, has thought about this, has really reflected on it, and so there needs to be freedom. There needs to be a consent that a person really says, you know, I want to do this. 
that this is what I intend. And so, and all of these things are, are uh, which I will speak to in just a bit, all of these pieces, you might say, are put together in order for us to make sure that we can actually celebrate the sacrament. And then there is the consummation of marriage, which obviously for husband and wife, the possibility of family and, and all that's connected with that. Um, the exchange of rings is not part of this. You know, it's, it's kind of traditionally, uh, you, you know, a part of, of the marriage uh, ritual, you might say. But it is not required. There, there do not have to be. There does not have to be an exchange of rings. And even if there is, is that there doesn't. You know, we even ask the question: Are there? Is there going to be one ring or two? You know, uh, because I've been at weddings where <clears throat> only the bride has received a ring. Never where only the groom has, <laughs> but where only the bride has received a ring. Uh, so there are pieces that all of these pieces need to be made sure. So when we start, when you think about the sacrament of marriage, is that one of the things that we ask usually of couples, most parishes I would say ask, is that give us enough time to work with you. So that it's not just something saying, oh, I got up one morning and decided I'm going to be married to X, Y, or Z. And it's, it's also because of these pieces of baptism, freedom to marry, consent, all of these pieces, is that what we do, usually I would say most parishes, probably about six months, is that what we do uh, with the couples is that we walk through with them and saying, are you really serious about this? Why? Why in church? There are gobs of opportunities or places. Why do you choose church? Where are you with your faith? And, and these are all kinds of questions, and we ask them in different ways in order to help a couple really to take time to think about, you know, what they, what they say they want to do. Is that by the virtue of the fact of their baptism, you know, a, a person in the Catholic tradition has a right to the sacraments. So it's not that somehow we become judge, jury, and executioner. And in fact, we need to work hard so that we don't become judge, jury, and executioner. You might say with, with helping to make a decision saying, help me understand why you are choosing to do this so that it's not just something, well, that's what we do, you know. You know, we, uh, we wear white during the summer and, and you know, we wear, we wear red, white, and blue during, on 4th of July. Eh, we're going to get married today, you know, in church because that's what's socially acceptable. And saying this isn't about what's socially acceptable. Where are you with your faith? What does this mean? How is this make a difference in the way you live and how you love? I would say that in, in 37 plus years of, of, uh, of, of doing this, you know, of practicing as a priest, you might say, is serving as a priest. I've um, had about mm, three couples that I've simply said, I cannot have your wedding. I simply cannot. In good conscience, what you are telling me is against you know what, it's not that they're not free. It's not that they, you know, technically could they, could they be married? Yes. But in good conscience, I could not because they simply in faith. I, what you tell them is that not that you can't do it as much as I'm going to have to delay this a while. Because what you're telling me is so against what we believe marriage to be. Fidelity in it. Um, that faith really means anything to you, uh, means something to you. Uh, so, I mean, there are pieces that we have to help a couple to discern. 
And, and then there are the usual things where, you know, we have to discern whether a person had been married before or not and all of that technicality stuff. But I think the most important part is, is that we are able to sit down with couples and saying, tell me a bit about yourself. Tell me about your faith. Tell me what this means. Tell me why church. And, and you know, and, and I would say, you know, a lot of couples were much younger. When I first started uh, in the 1980s is that most of the couples were in their late teens, early 20s. Now, most of your couples are in your late 20s, early 30s. So there has been a, a major shift. Uh, in the beginning, you know, I was dealing with couples mostly that were both Catholic. Today, probably say at least 50-50 where, you know, the couples are not, you know, one is not Catholic, one is. Doesn't prevent a marriage. It's just that we have to take the steps to deal with that. In, when I started in the 80s, I would say virtually 80-90% of the couples were not living together. Today, probably 80-90% are. Again, it doesn't prevent you from being married, but it's an opportunity to open the door and saying, help me understand how you made that decision. That's a big decision. I think it's a big decision to live with someone. How did you make that decision so that because, I, you know, and I will usually go with couples and say, you're going to be making many, many important decisions in your life. You know, do you make them strictly on because that's what I feel like or it saves money or it's convenient or I said, are those really wise ways, wise reasons to make important decisions? Marriage to me is an important decision. How do you make those types of decisions? So rather than using it as a way to slam the door and saying, sorry, you know, follow my rules or else. To me, it's a way to open the door and saying, help me understand a little bit more what's going on. And, and it's amazing, you know, of the conversations that, that one can have. And so even when you start looking at the, um, you know, the sacrament of marriage and sense of, of how do we come by this information? One, you know, whether a person is eligible or not, or what they call, are there impediments? is that we ask them right out. There's a whole list of questions that we have to ask. You know, have you been baptized? Have you been married before? Have you been engaged? Have you? And so there's a whole series of questions. Then there is something called bans. Now, bans, it's interesting, are the um, now usually the way it's done now is three weeks before uh, the marriage takes place. It is publicly listed in our bulletin unless for some reason it is requested not to, but you have to have permission. But the idea is, is that these bans are to bring out the possibility of a reason that may, some impediment that might be there. It's to get a full picture of the background of the couple. And we also have oftentimes affidavits for freedom to marry. The affidavits, you know, can be um, used with uh, parents, with friends, family members, but someone who can speak on the couple's behalf or the individual's behalf and say, indeed, I don't know of anything that would somehow <clears throat> prevent this marriage from being valid. I don't know anything that somehow this couple uh, is engaged in that would be, for example, placing conditions or whatever. And so these affidavits are another way to bring out information. What's interesting about the bans, though, which are three weeks prior, in the past, the bans 
used to be brought forward after the first reading during the wedding ceremony. That's where sometimes you get on TV, you know, you have the minister up there saying, does anyone present here, you know, have an objection to this marriage? Well, in reality, in the past history of the church, is that this question was asked after the first reading. <laughs> and that would be a pretty tough time for somebody to say, oh yeah, by the way, I know this information, as opposed to taking care of those things or whatever may need to be taken care of previous. But it makes for good TV or movies. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it makes for great TV uh, as far as that goes. Yeah, and lots of drama. <laughs> um, marriage, you know, when you think about it, again, going back to a couple of my original comments, is that it is realizing that a couple, you know, first and foremost, their primary commitment, you know, to Jesus as Lord and Savior, of course. But then living that out in the context of this, this permanent commitment. And, and as we recognize that, you know, uh, that uh, only death ends, you know, a sacramental marriage, uh, only death. Um, and so that once, you know, one of the pe persons, one member of the couple dies, is that then the other member would indeed be, uh, be free to marry. But even in the ritual, we say until death, you know, and, and we must not divide. Um, but can you... You can do an annulment See, or an, not. Yes, an annulment is possible, and there are a couple of ways. But an annulment or declaration of nullity, as the, as the official title, a declaration of, of nullity says the sacrament never existed. Not that it's being broken. Is that something was in the way that didn't allow the sacrament to actually exist. It's, it's one of those things where when it comes to a declaration of nullity, it's not, you know, boy versus girl and something like this. It is an individual saying, this sacrament never really existed, and these are the reasons why. And there could be all sorts of reasons. A person was forced into marriage, a person was guilted into marriage. A person uh, entered marriage with all sorts of conditions placed. But these sometimes are spoken, not spoken. There are lots of reasons. It's interesting how when you work with couples, lots of reasons that, that can make the, the sacramental bond, nullify the sacramental bond, I should say, saying that it didn't really exist. And all of these pieces, and sometimes it takes a while for a person to come to that awareness. That's why somebody says, well, how can somebody who married for 10 years or 20 years, you know, all of a sudden, you know, have a sacrament that's saying it's, it's nullified? Well, because as we know for lots of different reasons, it takes a long time sometimes for people to realize what's going on in their lives, uh, for good or for ill. You, you know, it's interesting how it's, the sacrament in a way is looked at as kind of like an object. I compare it to with couples sometimes and say to them, it's like a, compared to a baseball, is that there is a definition of a baseball and all of those pieces have to be there to make it a baseball. It can look like a baseball, act like a baseball, smell like a baseball, throw like a baseball, fly like a baseball. But if the major leagues were to discover that something was either added to it or subtracted from it, 
it would pretty much null any kind of winnings or whatever because you didn't have a regulation baseball. And there is a definition of what a regulation baseball is. So when you look at, for example, a sacramental marriage, there is a definition of what a sacramental marriage is and what it's not. And so if someone, for example, for 20 years felt that they were under, they were suppressed, they were controlled, they were, a person can live with a lot of things for a long time, but when they come to that realization, then you step up and saying, this was never really a sacramental marriage. It might have been a lot of different things, but it was never a sacramental marriage. And so it's, it's being able to help couples look at that and saying, you know, we need to help them come to that point as realistically as they possibly can to make sure that they are entering this freely, unreservedly, uh, and a lifetime commitment. Divorce is the legal, you know, is the, is the declaration of the, a marriage ends for, you know, the secular world for the legal, legalities of it. Um, it has nothing to do with, uh, it has nothing to do with the sacramentality of a marriage whatsoever. So a couple could theoretically be legally divorced for a very long time. But without that declaration of nullity by church rules, they are still sacramentally married and not able to then enter another valid sacramental marriage until this first one is able to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. What actually has to take place for a marriage ceremony? Like, what are the parts that actually take place? Well, you know, after we've gone through all of the paperwork and such, and basically the paperwork, yeah, yeah, got to got to deal with the paperwork. That's it's a necessary evil of our of our society and church. Is that once that all of that has been taken place, is that then with the ceremony and such, you need to have at least two witnesses. You need the couple, you need at least two witnesses, uh, and you need a priest. Or if someone else is dele delegated, it could be a deacon, or you know, in, in other circumstances, a lay person could witness a sacramental marriage because the sacrament of marriage is the only sacrament that we have where the couple are the two that perform the actual sacrament. So as long as they, can, they are free to do that, is that a bishop could appoint a lay person to witness sacramental marriages. So you have the person who witnesses it, you have because it may be done within or without of the context of Mass, Eucharist, mm -hmm. and you have to have the couple. You have to have two witnesses, and that's pretty much the minimum. You got to at least have five people. I thought on a wedding mm. certificate or a license or whatever it is that you have to have a officiant sign. So how would a layperson sign? For it to be valid in the Catholic Church. As long as the officiant has been appointed by the bishop, and is an official representative of the Catholic Church, they become an okay officiant for the state of Wisconsin. Does that happen a lot? No, <laughs> not at all. Uh, but no, it, it doesn't happen much at all. Usually it's either a Catholic priest or uh, a deacon. deacon. As long as you are an official uh, representative appointed by the bishop for the Catholic Church, you can sign it as the officiant. Just like, you know, if you went online and whatever, you can sign it. You just have to prove that you But you, you still are. have to follow the rules of the Catholic Church as far as a wedding would go. That is correct. Yeah. That is okay. correct. That is correct. So once we have those key people, is that uh, if, again, it can be within or without the context of, of the Eucharist, is that really you have your, uh, your liturgy of the Word, the Scriptures, 
And then after the liturgy of the word and, and preaching is that then you have the ritual of marriage. With the ritual of marriage, you once again, you basically say, you know, the consent. Have you come here freely? We have or I have. Um, and so you have the consent. Then there is the reception of the consent. You know, since you have done this or since you have stated this, I now ask you to turn to join your hands. And then I, you know, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, take you, Kathy. His name is my yeah, name too. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. You know, to, uh, you know, I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband uh, in the good and the bad, sickness and health until death do we part. And so, so there is the, that, that the saying of the vows, the exchange of vows, mm -hmm. and, and that it is witnessed. That's why the need, it, that it is witnessed by people, that, that the people that are present. And then, you know, after that, you know, then there might, may or may not be an exchange of rings. But it's interesting is that the exchange of rings is not to be before the declaration of marriage. It is always after. Again, what's important is the declaration. Can they write their own vows? Yes, people can, uh, as long as they they express what the church is expressing. So, for example, uh, I've had couples write their own vows. Some have done a beautiful job, you know. But when somebody says, I will love you until the rivers run dry and the mountains fall, and, and they've just placed conditions on their marriage hmm. because the rivers might run dry and the mountain may fall, is that you cannot, whatever you do, and this is what I help couples to look at, is that you cannot place conditions. This is until death, you know? Um, otherwise, what in, usually what happens is, that's usually what couples do, is they think of these incredible things. Well, that might happen. You've just placed a condition on your marriage. A lot of times they'll also put in something like, I will love you as long as you love me into the depths of our hearts. You've just placed conditions, you know, not to mention it gets a little sappy once in a while. Do you have to approve them? I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You would. I would never. So you can't just get up there and make it up. No, 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 no. Not going to happen. Not in my, you know, not in my experience because you, you get yourself in all sorts of trouble, usually because the couples place conditions on their marriage. It may not sound like a condition, but you have to take it to the nth degree mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, no, this is until, even if someone says till the end of time, well, what is that even supposed to mean? Is that you have to have somewhere in there until death, until death. Isn't that a condition though? Yes, it is. That is, but it makes really no difference because it's, the person has died. There's no longer a commitment when the person has died. Now, some people will say to you, no, I made a commitment once and that is until I die also. But technically with the church saying until the only thing that, that ends the sacrament for a couple is the death of one of the people. Okay. So, so yes, technically you might say it is, but um, but that technicality does allow one to get married into the church if they so desire a second time. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, after, you know, at times I would say a lot of Catholic couples, they are, 
you know, do celebrate the Eucharist and, and they receive the Eucharist. This really is a celebration of genuine love. What has led up to this relationship, the relationship, and what the promise is for the future. It's, it's again, when you think about it, there's a tremendous beauty there and a tremendous challenge of couples to really saying, you know, when people encounter you, we will say that they encountered nothing less than the presence of God. Why? Because where there is love, there is God. And if truly a person is, is you know, living this love commitment um, in this way, then we would say, then we believe that, that God is somehow present here in all of this. So there's a lots there and, and a lot more we could do, but it's just a lot more we could talk about, but it's, it's recognizing that, you know, there, uh, it's really very basic when you come right down to it. Mm -hmm. And it's helping couples to kind of dig through all of that in order to discover what's important, what's going to be important for them. We should probably move on to your, uh, uh, yeah. what your specialty is here, holy orders. Yeah. Well, it, again, you know, it's interesting how uh, I, I really do see this when we think of holy orders, that uh, my, my approach is, is so much, again, it's a way of, of serving people. It's a way of ministering to. It's not about power, it's not about position, it's not about titles, it's not about any of that. It's, it's about being able to recognize that, that you know, there is the sacrament uh, enables us, you might say, to, uh, to really to grow in holiness and, and in order to serve the people of God, to celebrate with them, to pray with them, to, to be able to, to be part of those marvelous moments in their life. Um, I am a firm believer that uh, I've learned to be a, the, a theologian in the seminary. Uh, I did not learn how to be a priest. Uh, for the last 37 years, I have been learning how to be a priest through the people of God that I have served. Um, that is something that the seminary can't teach us. Uh, at times, people say, well, didn't the seminary teach you that? The seminary can't teach us everything. And, and, and I would say, woe to the guy who believes that the seminary did, <laughs> you know, because they will find out very quickly that they don't know nearly as much as they think they do. When it comes to priesthood, um, you know, first, just to kind of some, just a little bit of generalities is that you have the priesthood of Christ, which, you know, when we talk about priesthood, sometimes it's, it's good to clarify the, uh, the terms that we're using. So you have the priesthood of Christ, you know, uh, you are a priest forever <coughs> by the order of Melchizedek. And so you have the priesthood of Christ. Then you have, uh, you have two participations, you might say, in that, in that priesthood of Christ. And the first one is baptismal, the priesthood of the baptized. Um, and so by virtue of baptism, we all participate in a degree in, in the priesthood of Christ. Then there is also the, the ministerial priesthood, which then, you know, bishops, priests, deacons, and those, those folks. Uh, so it's it's always important when we when we start to talk about that of what that means to live those commitments out as fully as possible. So all of us, by virtue of baptism, you know, have a responsibility to live that out, you know, to the fullest degree that we can. And then those who are who participate in the ministerial priesthood, you know, to somehow, you know, to live out that particular commitment. Uh, in the commitments that they have have uh, made, and in the sacrament that they have promised. Again, each of these have to be 
entered freely and there is a whole process of making sure evaluations and such making sure that that as a uh, a person entering ministerial priesthood that you are doing this freely without coercion without you know uh, condition all of those things because again you know there have been people who have left active ministry and those who have been you know kind of absolved from that similar to you might say the annulment process you know for a marriage is that it's recognizing that the sacrament didn't take place that there were either conditions placed on it they were possibly forced into it for some reason and and all of those go across the board but I have found that you know past 30 some 37 years that certainly it has been a grace for me and I have I have learned so so much um, that I would never have imagined it's it's it can be hard uh, but anything worth living will have its difficult moments but by far and large is that uh, it has been a grace and, and I've been asked by a couple of folks you know as I celebrate you know my different anniversaries is that would you do it again? And I will tell them in a heartbeat. You know, I have had some tough moments, but in a heartbeat. Um, I could not have imagined how graced God would, how graced and grace-filled my life would be <clears throat> through the grace of God, you know, by, by living it out ministerially. When you look at, again, uh, there are, when it comes to priesthood, <clears throat> again, part of this is, you know, the, the degrees, you might say, of priesthood, of what that means of, of sharing in that priesthood of Christ. Um, you have, you know, at the top level of the bishops, mm -hmm. you know, um, the bishop is the highest level. Pope is, that's a, that's more, you know, systemic, bureaucratic and such. It's not, it's not like you were ordained a pope. Uh, you were, you know, you were raised to that. Uh, you, you You're know, voted in. Yeah. Um, you are either elevated in, you are ordained, you are, you know, raised to that levels or whatever, consecrated. But it's, it's that you have the bishop, you have the priest, and then you have the deacon. Um, deacons primarily uh, service to the word and can witness marriages and baptize children. Also minister communion, tend to the sick and such. Uh, priests celebrate Eucharist, reconciliation. Uh, those things, there are some of those things that are reserved uh, to the priest and, and the bishop. And the bishop is really the fullness of it all. Um, and, you know, really that fullness of, of what it means to be ordained a priest or is to be, you know, the, the fullness of that. What about a cardinal? Cardinal is, a, again, you are raised to a cardinal. You are not ordained as a cardinal. It is more of a um, honorary systemic position. Uh, normally as cardinals, cardinals, they vote for the next pope. And as cardinals, they are usually named... Um, uh, so because they had a major diocese, New York, Chicago, St. Louis, um, you know, Los Angeles. Um, but it is an, it's more of an honorary title as opposed to an ordained, anything that's ordained. So when you go from a priest to a bishop, there's a special like ordination ceremony? Correct. You are or... ordained a bishop, okay. you know, to the fullness of priesthood. But you are ordained a bishop, you know, from a priest. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are lots of titles out there, but the basics are bishop, priest, deacon. That's really the basics. Mm -hmm. And anything else kind of is a variation on the theme, you might say. In sure. how that. Uh, when it comes to actually, you know, ordination, when it comes to the, the rite and ritual of ordination, 
is that really the two key pieces are one is the imposition of hands by the bishop and the prayer of consecration. Um, now, you, you do have other pieces such as the anointing of, of the hands. You are presented the book of the Gospels. You are presented, you know, both the bread and the wine and celebrating Eucharist. But the key parts of the rite really are the imposition of hands uh, by the bishop and then the prayer of consecration when it comes to ordination. It's, um, it's a powerful ceremony because when, when, when you're ordained, uh, one of the pieces of it is that after the bishop you know, lays on hands is that uh, generally all of the concelebrating priests are invited to do the same. And it is, it is very humbling and awe-inspiring you know, to, to recognize that, that these, these men, your colleagues, and to be your colleagues, are, are praying for you and specifically asking for that grace and the power of the Spirit to come upon you. Um, there's also, you know, at one point you, you lie uh, prostrate um, before the bishop again in an act of humility, you know, before, before the bishop but also before God. And you, you do, what you do is you, you do make a promise you know, of stability. As a diocesan priest, I make a promise of stability for the bishop and all of his successors. I don't take vows. I make promises. You know, um, celibate lifestyle, uh, promise of stability, simplicity of lifestyle. These are promises that I make to the bishop and his successors. So what's the difference between a promise and a vow? Vows are made to God. Oh. And so religious order priests and religious order brothers and such they make vows to god of poverty chastity and obedience promises are you know and again are made to the bishop vows are made to god um, and part of that is because of the fact that you know with a religious order priest you might say they are committed to a group okay the jesuits dominicans franciscans capuchins they're committed to a group and wherever that group sends them they live out these, these uh, vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. As a diocesan priest, we're committed to a geographic area, you might say. <laughs> you know, we're committed to the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, to the Diocese of Madison. And so rather than being committed to a group and going sent out, I am committed to my bishop of this territory, you might say. And so I can serve in the confines of this archdiocese in, in basically within I can do pretty much anything you know within the confines of this diocese I can't function though outside the diocese so I can't go to the Madison diocese and and you know practice as a priest unless I have the permission of the bishop I can't go to Green Bay or Superior uh, or La Crosse without the permission of the bishop because my promises are to function as a priest in this archdiocese and my commitment is to this bishop. And there are whole promise processes, I should say, that if, let's say, I wanted to move to another diocese or, or you know, become a religious order, there's a whole three to five year process that we have to go through. Oh my gosh. Again, you want to make sure you're making the right decision mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that you're not just going back and forth out of convenience. And in all of these, you know, when you think about any of these laws, they're always put into place because of abuses usually. And so uh, over over years, these processes have, you know, developed. 
But the key difference is that I am considered in many ways secular clergy. I'm not a religious order. I, I don't have, to, I am not committed to living in community. That's what religious order people do. Mm -hmm. I am considered secular clergy and, and the idea between secular clergy anyway in the early years of the church is that many of uh, the secular clergy had or diocesan clergy had families. They lived in neighborhoods. They were to give witness by the way that they lived as the religious leader of that area, they were to give witness of what it meant to be a disciple. Over the years, obviously, lots of things have changed. There are some key ways, I should say, that, that, that how priests serve. Uh, one of the key ways that priests serve is through teaching. Um, another key way that a priest serves is through divine worship, prayer leadership, Eucharist, of course. And then there is another way that they serve what the, we would call a more technical term of pastoral governance that that there is an expectation that I know what I'm doing and that I know what the church expects and that I know how the church approaches things that my ordination says and speaks of the fact that I am keeping up with that that I am educating myself that and that I am not I have you know made the commitment that that I am not going to be teaching people wrong um, it's one of the things for me that you know, if I ask people to do some things or whatever, and I will say to them, I will never have you do anything that is against church teaching. But it's, it's the ability for a priest to be able to read the people that he is to serve so that he is able to address their needs, but also he is able to help people take their culture, their experience, their whatever, and to help them to see that in what it means to be a disciple. So those roles of teaching and worship and, and governance and such are important roles because it helps people to connect to the church. Um, and, and I think sometimes that's what we, um, you know, that's sometimes we haven't focused on enough is that we can, we can give a lot of rules, mm -hmm. but how do you connect? How does a person have, you know, connect the church to their everyday life? And I'm sure now with everyone having to stay home and not seeing people, yeah. it's been very difficult. Yeah, because generally we have, you know, we've, we've oftentimes only seen that the presence of Christ or whatever, you know, is only one thing. And that's that's the Eucharist, you know, um, bread and wine, uh, body and blood of the risen Christ. Is that in, in some ways what this has helped people to understand, you know, again, particularly folks sometimes on the, on the, on the fringes, is that you know when we receive the body of Christ and, and the host, the Eucharist and the bread of the bread, the body of a risen Christ, we are receiving the full, the full Christ. We are not just receiving part of him. Because sometimes people will say, well, well, but I have to receive the blood of Christ also. But our Catholic Church has always taught that, you know, in receiving, you know, one of the elements that we receive the full Christ. There is a full expression when we receive both, but we receive the full Christ. We're not just receiving part. And the other piece, too, is that, you know, receiving on the tongue or on the hand or whatever. Is that saying no? Is that, you know, receiving either way, one is not holier than the other. One is not more respectful. One is not more sacred. These are two ways to receive the body, the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes this something like this has really... Help bring that, that back into focus a bit.
Because sometimes we can lose that. We get so used to something. We can lose that. And, 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 some, and, and also we begin to miss what, you know, what we've had that we may be taken for granted. You know, of being able to gather and worship with folks, and and uh, that's why part of it, you know, Lindsay, when we, with with what we've been doing here, as as you know, as being part of the staff here, is that the emphasis that we have placed on this of being able to recognize the importance of staying in touch with people, helping people to pray, even if it's at a distance, being able to to in, keep in, in encountering people in lots of different ways because people need to be connected. And how much that has been a focus here, and 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 priesthood is really helping people to stay connected with one another, but ultimately with Christ, and and that's you know I think if we're doing our ta task well, it's it's not just about spouting rules and regs, you know it's it's about praying with and and encountering and engaging and and that's why sometimes the social distancing has been so difficult with that. So, uh, but priesthood is is you know when you when you think about the priesthood is that again it's um it has it, it is a grace and it has so much to offer and it's it's it is a it's a it's a wonderful way to live and uh what it means to be committed to the church and not to an individual other than christ it's it's about you know living well living faithfully of what it means to be in relationship with um, but not exclusively, you know, as in marriage. Um, it's about, you know, where your priorities are and, and how we are committed to prayer. So, for example, the liturgy of the hours uh, that we are expected to pray in the Office of Readings, that we are expected to pray on a regular basis every day. So that, again, it goes back in a way to, to being, you know, marinated rather than basted, you know, is that, you know, so that the prayer and, and what that means and all of that, it's not just about doing it to do it. Sure. It's about recognizing that when we do that on a daily basis and, and, and we pray regularly, it's like being marinated in the spirit and that it sinks into every pore that, you know, whether I am here or whether I'm in Florida on vacation, I am a priest. I don't become unpriest, just like someone doesn't become unmarried when they go off on a business trip. I, this is part and parcel of who I am. Mm. In what I say, what I do, how I party, how I enjoy, what I participate, all of that. That somehow this is always a part of it. I, I, don't, I can't leave it behind as if somehow it doesn't exist. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that I'm going to be you know, functioning as a priest every single day or whatever in that regard. But the way I live and how I love, yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's part and parcel of what this is. So it's, uh, it's realizing that, it's, that, that, you know, when it comes to priesthood, that it's more than just, you know, what you wear and that you say Mass. It's so much more than that. So. Oh, man. Well, clearly we could talk about this for a long time. Yes, we could. <laughs> but I think we'll end it there. And so ends our discussion of sacraments for now. Maybe we'll pick something up later, but... Well, We've gone through all seven. So. It'll be interesting to see if people pick up on any particular questions or things in light of a particular sacrament or whatever, because there are some things sometimes you could go off into a particular area or on a particular theme, and you'd be able to uh, to have a whole discussion on that. But mm -hmm. yeah, this was a great pleasure. So yeah. it's good. Thank you. All right. Well, we hope you enjoy this, and we will see you next time. Bye.